Psalm of the summer. It's going to be Psalm 27. Now, the summer's not over for you, but guess what? It is for me because I go back and start teaching college in two weeks. And I have a faculty retreat next week, and so the summer's over for me. And so we're going to finish the Psalms for the summer at Psalm 27. The next summer we'll pick up the 28 and see how far we go. Uh, next week we will probably start on, in a book on the New Testament for uh, just an interim until we get this change uh, that takes place in the classrooms. So probably for the month, rest of August and uh, into some of September, we'll either do the book of James or the book of Titus, I'm not sure which. And then we will go into Revelation, okay? But not Revelation the way it's normally taught. And I told you I'm going to give you more of a historical understanding of it. What did it mean to John's audience? And then you can apply it to us. Not acting as if John was writing to us. Guess what? He wasn't writing to us. He's writing to seven churches in Asia Minor. Who he's writing to? What does it mean to them? And then how can we take the meaning to them and apply those lessons to our lives? So it's going to be a different approach. Now, I've never taught it this way before. I've always taught it the traditional way. So it's going to be new, and I think it's going to be fresh. It'll be a lot of fun. So let's take our Bibles and open to Psalm 27. This is a psalm that you're familiar with. At least you're familiar with the first verse. It's a very well-known verse. But what in the world does it mean? Oftentimes we will quote a verse, and we really don't know what it means. And this is one of those psalms that have been put to music. At least the first verse has been put to music. The Lord is my light and my salvation, we shall appear. Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to divide the psalm into four sections. Now here's how we're going to divide it. And I think it's a natural division. Verses 1 through 3, uh, David answers the question of how to overcome fear. The answer to fear, verses 1 through 3. Second section will be verses 4 through 6. And here David expresses his love for God's house, the sanctuary of God. Then verses 7 through 13, David gives two prayers. Uh, and each prayer is followed by a meditation or a thought. And we're going to take a look at that. And then finally, verse 14, we're going to have the lessons that we can draw. David gives us lessons that we can draw from the Son. Now, as always in the past, we've learned a couple things. We've learned the importance of asking the question, to whom is David speaking? Is he speaking to himself? Is he speaking to God? Is he speaking to an audience? To whom is David speaking? And the second thing that we've learned over this past summer is to ask the question, in what, which tense is David speaking? Is he speaking in present tense, past tense, future tense? Because that will determine the meaning of the text. Okay? Uh, so these observations are very important. This is how you can get the gist of many Old Testament passages just by noticing those kinds of things. So let's start off with section number one, David's answer to fear. Look at verse one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Now if I said, what do you notice here? You should say, you notice that present. The Lord is. <laughs> Very good. See, now I, you're you're doing as well as better than my students in college. <laughs> right now, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Now watch this. Whom shall I fear? Now what do you notice? Future. 
See that? Right now, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Therefore, in the future, whom should I fear? And the answer is, no one. You shouldn't have to fear anyone if the Lord is your light and your salvation. And then it goes on to say, the Lord is my strength, the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Same answer, no one. Now, one thing I want you to notice, it doesn't say the Lord gives me light. The Lord provides strength. It says the Lord is my light. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my salvation. It's like a business executive who has flies overseas and he has a bodyguard. The bodyguard doesn't give him strength. The bodyguard is the strength. He's the muscle. He doesn't say, now give me strength, Mr. Bodyguard, so I can defend myself. No, the bodyguard is there to defend him. The bodyguard's going to do the work. So it's not the Lord gives us the strength and gives us the light and gives us the salvation. He is our light. He is our strength. He is our deliverance. So we depend upon him. That's why David is confident that because the Lord is these things right now in the future, he will not be afraid. That's the confidence that he has. That's the confidence that we should have. If you understand that, we could be very confident. If I walked into this room with two great things, Six foot six, two hundred eighty pound bodyguards. I don't think I'd be afraid of anybody in this room. <laughs> now when I walk in by myself, I'm afraid of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> now you could have given me an answer, so you need to start lifting weights and get some strength. Right. Yeah, but I don't have. You know, or if this room were dark and I was afraid to trip over a chair, you said, "Well, you need to turn on the light." But how about the Lord's my light? And everywhere I walk, the light just shines all around me. Would I would be worried about tripping over a chair? No. See, so once you understand this, then you can have the confidence. Now look at verse 2. When the wicked... What? When the wicked came against me to eat my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and... Fell. Now, what do you notice about this verse? You notice there's a tense there? Yes, you do have a tense. In verse 1, the Lord is my light. That's present tense. Whom shall I fear? Future tense. But in verse 2, when they came against me, they stumbled, E-D on the end, and they fell. What is that? Past tense. Present tense, the Lord is my, my, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Future tense. When they came against me, they stumbled past tense. Because you see, when the Lord is your light and your salvation and your strength, whoever comes against you doesn't have a chance. See? And so now what David is doing, he's pointing to a, a past event, a historical event. And he's describing enemies, which he calls foes, who came against him. And he's really describing an army that has come against Jerusalem and come against David and they want him dead but instead of them succeeding in their mission what happened to them they stumbled and they fell meaning in battle you know why they stumbled you know why they fell and not David because the Lord wasn't their light <laughs> and the Lord wasn't their strength he is David. 
and he definitely should be ours. Now look at verse 3. Though an army encamp me, now notice again, there's that army. See, this is why we know that this is sort of a battle song. Though an army may encamp against me, meaning in the future, though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. In what will David be confident? He says, in this I'll be confident. In what will he be confident? The Lord's his strength and his life and his salvation. Same thing's going to happen. He's not worried about any future event. Hey, did he have to worry about the past? No, the enemy stumbled. The enemy fell. The enemy was defeated. So now, does he have to worry about the future? No, and this I will be confident. He's not worried about a future army coming in and invasion. So, invading. So, this is what we have in verses 1 through 3. We have David's answer to fear. So, what is David's answer to fear? Always knowing the Lord is his strength, his light, and his deliverance and salvation. What's the answer for us overcoming fear? Same thing. Makes sense, doesn't it? Now let's look at part two of this psalm. He now speaks of his love for God's house. And this is very interesting. One thing I have desired of the Lord. His whole life he's desired one thing. Always be looking at the verb. I'm not going to point him out every time. He's always desired one thing. And here, here it is. One thing I desire to the Lord, that will I seek. What is it, David? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord, the sanctuary, the tabernacle of the Lord, all the days of my life. So David has one priority. Uh, this isn't, he doesn't have a priority list, and this is the top of his priority. It's not one among many priorities. He says in verse 4, there's only one thing that he's desired. He has one desire, and notice it's a holy desire. If I ask you to list your desires and put one at the top, uh, would your top desire be a holy desire? How would your desire compare with David's desire? What is his desire? Believe it or not, he has one desire, and if we put it in modern day language, it would be go to church. He wants to be in God's house. Now, that's, that's amazing to me that he would say that. Now, why does he want to be in church? Why does he want to go to God's house? Look at the end of verse 4. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He wants to go into the tabernacle because that's where God's presence is. And he wants to behold God's beauty. He wants wisdom from God. But I thought about this. What does it mean to behold God's beauty? It must have been so magnificent to see God's presence somehow. And I don't know how that was all reflected. But it was such an unbelievable thing that that was his one desire. I have to get in there and see it again. You ever been somewhere to me? I have to go there again. Uh, God's glory and God's beauty and his wonder. It was fresh every day. It was uh, never old. It never got stale. It's like a rainbow. We've seen rainbows hundreds of times. But guess what? Every time we see one, it catches our 
imagination, it catches our breath, it catches us off guard. Uh, you, when you see a rainbow, I remember when our kids were little, guess what I would do? Say, hey, come and see the rainbow. What? <laughs> Why? It was unbelievable. Look at those colors in the sky. Well, that's what David, he desired to see God's glory and God's beauty. So he wanted to be in the tabernacle as much as he could. And that's the difference between God's beauty and the beauty that the world has to offer because the world's beauty always fades. You ever watch the Antique Roadshow? <laughs> they tell you about this painting and they say, well, I could sure use a cleaning, you know. And if you would uh, just, that's $300, it'd be worth 3000 more. Because, guess what? The beauty of the world fades. But God's beauty never fades. This is the thing about God. This is the thing about Jesus. You know, the more you get to know me, the less you like me. That's the truth. You know somebody superficially, you like them, you're attracted to them, uh, marry them. And you get to know more about them and you start seeing things that you don't like. But guess what? With Jesus, the more you get to know him, the better it is. With God's beauty, it never fails. David said, I want to be in the house of the Lord. You know why you don't like being in the house of the Lord? Not, not shouldn't say you, I mean just people in general. It's because maybe God's presence isn't in the house of the I mean, if God's presence was there and it was so magnificent all the time, I'd want to be in there all the time, wouldn't you? But you know what happens if you if God's presence isn't in there? Then going to church becomes a chore. It becomes ordinary. It can even become boring. This is why as Christian churches need to make certain that God's glory is always present there. It's very important. And I'm not sure how we do that, but I know that David sits God's presence there. He had one desire. He wanted to go to church. He wanted to go to the sanctuary of the Lord. Now look what he says in verse 5. Here's one of the reasons he wanted to do it. For in the time of trouble, when trouble comes, he loves to dwell in the house of the Lord. Because when trouble comes, verse 5, he shall hide me in his pavilion. Uh, I will have been so used to the house of the Lord, and he'll be so used to me being in his presence that if trouble comes, I can seek refuge, refuge in the tabernacle of God. Look what it says in verse 5. In the secret place of his tabernacle, his sanctuary, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Now there are three shalls there. He shall hide me. Number one, in the in the pavilion. Number two, he shall hide me, meaning in the tabernacle or the sanctuary. And the third shall is he shall set me high upon a rock. What this means is two of these shalls have to do with protection. When trouble comes, I can always run to the Lord and he will protect me. The last shall has to do with putting David out of reach. He will put me up on a rock where my enemies can't reach me. And he's using imagery here, but he's telling us why the house of the Lord is so precious to him. And that's why the tabernacle is called a sanctuary. Sanctuary is where you can run. We even use that word today. Run and find refuge. 
So uh, David says that uh, that's what's going to happen. And then he says in verse 6, And now, notice that's not past, that's not future. Now my head shall be lifted up, meaning from this point onward, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies. Now how can he be lifted up above his enemies? Well, one thing, he's on that rock in verse 5. My head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Now where are his enemies? All around him. Where is he? He's above them and in the tabernacle. But they surround Jerusalem. But David has found refuge and he's above them. He's set on a rock and his head is lifted up. Remember Psalm 24? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and lift them up, ye everlasting doors. The king of glory shall come. You'll experience God's presence. So David is praising the Lord and his head's lifted up in confidence. And he's in God's presence. And that's why he's not afraid. His head's lifted up. He lifts up your head. That speaks of confidence. That's why you can face these people who are not afraid of confidence. What's the opposite of lifting up your head? Hang down your head. Now, if you lift up your head, that means you're confident. Look me in the eye. Lift up your head. Put your head up. But to hang down your head, that speaks of not being confident, doesn't it? That speaks of being afraid and being ashamed. David's not afraid. He's not cowering. He doesn't feel guilty. God's accepted him into his presence. He looks up at his enemy. He's above them. He has his confidence, full assurance that he is not going to lose this battle when this army, which has surrounded the city, now invades. He is why? Why won't he lose the? Why won't he lose the battle? Because God is his friend. God is his deliverance. And then he says in verse six, "Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises." the Lord. So this is the result knowing that uh, God has given him confidence for victory because if God is for you, who could be against you? He now just begins to praise the Lord even in advance. He knows that the victory is already won. So he doesn't let his head hang down. He lifts it up in confidence. Now that brings us to the third section of the psalm, beginning in verse 7. Here we have David's prayers and what I'm going to call his musings his uh, his thoughts about issues. Now, prayer number one is found in verse 7. Look what he says. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. So he says, in light of what he's already said, and so Lord, when I need help and I cry out for help, don't let me down. I've trusted you all along. Now don't let me down in the future when difficulties come. And he doesn't expect that God will. He expects God will answer. He says, hear me. He expects to be heard. Have mercy. He expects God to have mercy. Answer me. Or he expects an answer. Now why does he expect God to answer him in these times of problems? Look at verse 8. When you said... Seek my face. My heart said to you, your face will I seek. So, God, notice this, has given David an invitation. And he gives us an invitation. In verse 8, what is the invitation? 
Seek my face. God wants us to seek him. He wants us to cry out to him for help. Why? Because he's not just a light. He's not just a, a salvation. He's not just the light. He's my life. He's my salvation. He cries out for us to seek. He says, seek my face. And guess what David says? My heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. <laughs> so David's just responding to, to God's uh, initiative. And notice that this God who takes the initiative. God invites <laughs> us to seek him. And then we respond. Now there's a lot of no we a lot of people know that God says, Seek my face, but guess what? We don't respond and we don't seek it. David says, Yes, Lord, I will seek your face. Now you know from other passages that seeking God's face and having God look at you speaks God's favor and blessing, right? May his face shine down upon you and bless you. So he's asking God to bless him and get him through this situation. Look at verse 9. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Now I like this passage because there's a logic here. In verse 8, if God invites you to seek his face, then in verse 9, guess what he won't do? He won't hide his face. Because he invited you in verse 8 to seek his face, guess what he won't do? He won't hide his face. And guess what he won't do? He won't turn his face away from you. He's asked you to seek his face. And David says, I'm going to. So, Lord, when I do it, keep your word and don't turn away from me when I cry out and I ask for help. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Verse 9. You have been my help. Notice, don't do it in the future, Lord. Turn your face away from me. Look at verse, in the middle of verse 9. You have been my help, meaning in the past, now, do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Same word that he uses, deliverance. Same word that he uses back in verse 1. So, he said, you asked me to seek you, I said I would seek you. Hey, when I come to you, don't hide your face. Uh, don't, don't forsake me. You've been my help in the past. Continue to be my help in the future. So, this is David's prayer. Now he has a musing or a thought. See, all that was addressed to God. Now he just comes out with a thought. And here's his thought. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. David starts thinking. And he thinks of the worst case scenario. Parents forsaking their children. Your closest kin Taking you. He said, even if something like that should happen. Even if my parents, my birth parents let me down, I know the Lord won't protect me. Now some of you have had that happen to you. You've had parents protect you. You've had children turn their backs on you, not like you. They for some reason they just after they went away from the house, they never come back. I had a friend who gotten married. When I was back in Baltimore, married when he was 25 years old, uh, that he didn't come back to his, live, live within miles of his parents, didn't come back and see them for four years. His mother got on the phone, would call up, he wouldn't even return from 
She had no idea what was going on. <laughs> she couldn't understand it. Even if your kids and your spouses and your parents have tried to ruin your lives and have hurt you deeply, I want you to know something. What did David say there in verse 10? When my father and mother forsake me, then, hey, guess what? Then the Lord will take care of me. And the Lord will take care of me. And then we come to his second prayer in verse 11. Here's what he says. Teach me your way, O Lord. In other words, give me a sure word. Give me guidance. And lead me in a smooth path. Don't put me on a path where I am going to end up losing my footing. And I'm going to stumble. I'm not the one that wants to stumble here. They need to stumble. The enemy needs to stumble. Uh, he's still talking about this battle scene and all of his enemies. Lead me in a smooth, teach me, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Uh, he says, I need your, know your will, teach me. I need to be able to do your will, put me on a smooth path so I don't end up stumbling. Uh, because if you don't do this, Lord, if you don't give me the wisdom in this situation, and you don't put me on level ground where I can keep my footing. And the enemies come against me. See, that's how in verse 11 ends, because of my enemies. And the enemies come against me, then I'm a dead duck. You don't help me, I'm a dead duck. That's basically what he's saying here. And that's true for all of us. And then he says, do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. You know what their will was, don't you? Yeah, knock him off. Because they're false witnesses who have risen against me as such and such as breathe out violence. They want David dead. And then he says, so that's his prayer. He says, Lord, don't, don't deliver me into their hands. Uh, deliver me from them. Okay. And now he has a music or a thought. He says this. I would have lost heart unless I had believed. That's faith. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Uh, another way of saying this, I would have lost heart. Hey, I'd have given up long ago if I didn't trust that God would come through and I would end up surviving all these battles and I would not end up in the land of the dead but I would end up in the land of the living. Uh, that's what he's basically saying. Uh, I would have given up a long time ago if it had not been for faith. And that's our problem. I think one of our problems as Christians is that we face problems and then we end up being faithless. Uh, we give up. We give up. Then we say, God's not going to come through. And so then we start relying on our own strength and our own wisdom and light, and then we end up making some terrible mistakes. That's the mistake that we make. So, what's the bottom line on all this? Verse 14, the last part of the psalm, he gives us a lesson. Here's what he says. Wait on the Lord. 
Uh, to put it in modern language, I just say, be patient. He'll come through. Be patient. He's not going to let you down. He told you to seek my faith. I've done it. He's not going to hide. I can turn his back. He's going to come through. Did he come through in the past? Yes. Will he come through in the future? Yes. Don't give up before the answer comes. Wait on the Lord. Don't say, well, I'll take the bull by the horns. That's not waiting on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And then he says this. Be of good courage. Okay, let's put it in another language. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What am I going to do? It's getting close to the deadline. Don't be afraid. Be bold. Why are you going to be bold? Because you're bold in the Lord, not in your own strength. And then he says, and if you wait on the Lord, if you're patient, and you're not afraid, you're bold, it says this, wait on the Lord and be of good courage, and he might strengthen your heart. Is that right? No. He shall strengthen your heart. He will give you resolve. And then he says this, wait, I say, on the Lord. How should we wait? Wait in faith. Wait by faith. Wait in hope. Wait knowing the Lord will keep His word. Don't be impatient. Don't quit too soon. But I want to emphasize the word I say. Look at this. Wait. This is this is your last word. Wait. I say on the Lord. Now, if I wanted to ask David a question, I could say, well, who are you to say that? And what would be the answer? <laughs> well... Obviously, the God, the Lord has come through with it for David every time, hasn't he? David is giving a testimony. He said, wait, I say, look, from past experience. On the Lord, from past experience, I can tell you, wait on the Lord. He is speaking as what advertisers would call a satisfied customer. He can talk from experience. And he's telling you, don't you fail to wait on the Lord because so often uh, we give up right when God's ready to come through. And then when we do that, we start trusting our own selves. Now, why should he wait on the Lord? I'm convinced it's because he believes that God is good. Didn't he say that somewhere in one of these verses? Somewhere he says that God's good. I don't know that. What verse was that? Somebody help me. 13. Oh, 13? Yes, I don't think I even read that, did I? I would have lost faith unless I had believed, look at this, that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Look at it, the goodness of the Lord. Uh, that's why he says wait, because God's good. We've dealt with this in the Psalms. God's good. We don't believe God's good. We always think God's sort of just like a cosmic, you know, sort of has a little scheme. He's just watching where you can trip up and say, ah, God, old street that time. Wait on the Lord because God's good. Uh, he's good for his word. He will come through, and he's good all the time. And so with that, 
David leaves that message. And that's the one lesson that he wants to leave. It's not just that God is my life and my salvation, you shall fear. The lesson is, in light of that, guess what you need to do in every circumstance? Wait on the Lord. He won't let you down. He'll come through. So we'll stop there, and next week we'll pick up with the New Testament. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a word of encouragement. You are good. Uh, so often we look upon you as some ogre who is out to get us. But Lord, we are your children. You love us. Uh, you tell us, I love you. You tell us to seek your face, to come and, and have a relationship with you. Oh Lord, help us to realize that based on this relationship, this covenant that you've made with us through Christ's death and resurrection, that we are your children and you, we can depend upon you and you indeed will meet our every need. Christ's name we pray. Amen.